So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I'm Nate. I'm David. And uh, here it is on, I can feel already the descent of winter. It's a little bit chilly. I got my jacket on here in the studio. Yeah, it's cold in here today, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's on us. The yeah. short days and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have found, do you find that it's a little bit tougher to get up in the morning when the days are shorter? God, yes, because it's always dark. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's dark when I wake up. It's dark, you know, yeah, when I yeah, get yeah. out of the office at night at, you know, at five o'clock. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it is easier for me to go to bed at night at a decent hour mm -hmm. because, you know, because it's getting dark mm -hmm. so early. But it's really important for me to maintain, uh, you know, a, a good routine and positive sobriety. Mm -hmm that I get up in time to do some fundamental disciplines before the day begins. Right. And that becomes more of a challenge when it's so dark early yeah. in the morning. Yeah. 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 It, it is. I used to have uh, an alarm clock. It was one that was recommended to me early in recovery. The darn thing broke, but it was called a sunrise clock. Oh. It was a, so it was a, you'd set it for when you wanted to get up. It had a light, had a light bulb on it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that, that would start to glow just like the sun was coming up. Right, it would begin to light up before it was time to wake up, and then the alarm would go off, and the light would wake you up. Yeah, it seemed a little bit more sensible. Maybe I need to get another one of those. Yeah, well, I have an alarm clock. Okay, uh, she weighs ninety-five pounds, <laughs> <laughs> and she has a lot of hair. Yeah, and yeah. she comes over at, uh, and I don't know. God gives apparently timers yeah. in dogs, uh -huh. and and she comes over in the morning and. And starts nosing my, it's, it's, she's a great Pyrenees, so okay. she's huge. Yeah. And she starts nosing my arm out from under the cover. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And, and she makes these growly sounds. Not barks, <laughs> just... And nudges my arm and, and wants me out of bed at 5.30 every really? day. And she doesn't get the memo when the time changes. Unbelievable. No, no, she doesn't get the memo. And so so she's got to go out. Of course, I live in a building yeah. downtown, and it's I dark. live in a building. Oh, but you live in a building with other people. I, right. Yeah, my building okay. includes okay. A, lot of, a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and, so, and so I live downtown, and uh -huh. it's dark. Yeah. And so we're out walking the block at this ungodly hour of the morning, freezing <laughs> ah! to death. <laughs> it's just, yeah, so my alarm clock, I'd rather have the sunrise yeah. alarm version. Wow. Yeah, she's a she's a piece of work. <laughs> but isn't it amazing though that really kind of the the life of recovery comes down it's it's has it's spiritual. Mhm. Mm it's also intensely practical. Yeah. Uh, learning to do things uh, that promote healing really which right. is what recovery is about. Yeah. Uh, and it come down it, 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 for some of us. It, it can come down to absolutely the fundamentals of, you know, food, clothing, uh, and shelter. Right. Yeah. 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 Just having a place mm -hmm. to wake up in yeah. is a luxury. Well, we have a guest today, whose uh, story follows right along those lines, and whose work in positive sobriety, his service work, uh, is very much a part of. Uh, Food, clothing, and shelter. Yeah, getting getting people started on the road to recovery. Mm -hmm. You're going to want to hear this. It's a very uh, heartwarming and inspiring story. Mm -hmm. We'll be back in a minute on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. 
Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. <laughs> and David, you have once again gone uh, to great lengths to bring us an extraordinary guest today. Well, it's great because I find out about people and I just kind of pursue them and, and assume that they have no reason to say Stalk no. them? Is that what yeah. you do? Yeah. You can camp out in front of somebody's house long enough. They'll, <laughs> they'll do what you want just to get you off of their doorstep. But uh, today I'm excited because Brian Hughes is our guest. And Brian is the owner, director, founder of Second Chance Sober Living. And oh. uh, they have over 14 homes. He's going to tell us about that, uh, about their work, about his story, and about um, the sober living uh, community in um, in our area, but also what that serves, what that looks like, what it is like to go into sober living as opposed to just treatment or if it's post-treatment and things like that. So I'm excited to talk to Brian. Brian, welcome. Thank you, guys. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Brian. So uh, we always assume that anybody who works in this field uh, has their own recovery story. That is pretty much a universal truth. Is that true for you? Absolutely, yes. I, yeah? I, I'm just celebrating my 16th year of sobriety. And, uh, ah, congratulations. It was, um, Fantastic. A, a, an arduous task. I had a lot of years before that where I attempted and, and had put together some years, but this is an actual continuous 16 years of sobriety after many years of attempt, attempt failure, attempt, failure. So it's it's definitely been a part of my life for a long time. And um Easily to say my, my life has been consumed and also mm. uh, resurrected through recovery. So it's, it's wow. been there all along. What can you tell us about your backstory? Your growing up years? and uh, It's pretty simple for me in terms of uh, where everything began. I, I, I had a typical childhood. Um, my, my mother uh, was an only I was an only child, and my father had left my mother at a quite a young age. Mm -hmm. um, so probably the biggest, I think, uh, takeaway from my childhood was that I grew up without a father um, that was absent completely from my life at the age of a very young age. Uh, I think it was three or wow. four. Um, so I had never known my father throughout my life and still haven't to this day. But um, <clears throat> I think that was a little bit of the maybe some of the stuff that had started some of the inadequacies that start with mm -hmm. trying to fill the void or trying to find different areas to compensate uh, along the way. Of course, unbeknownst to me at that age, but as I, as I have matured and, and look back on it, I think I've maybe been able to realize that was a, a big part of it. But I grew up in Nashville, and um, I was a pretty typical child. I was told for most of my younger years. Mm -hmm. um, but I was also at an age uh, when I moved into an area where I had a lot of uh, peers around me that were a lot older, and I was involved with alcohol and drugs at the age of nine, oh, nine or really? ten. So yeah. I got involved really young, really early. Um, and it, it was it was um, very uh, innocent at that time. It was just the, the basic, you know, a little drinking on the – uh, mm -hmm. weekends with the friends that I had, the older guys, and um, they kind of thought it was probably cute watching me get a little tipsy or whatever. And, and you know, f from where I was at, I loved it because it was attention. They were the guys, and I wanted to be one of the guys. And, of course, being an only child with the mother only, mm -hmm. um, I really had experienced a lot of um, – absence of a male figure so I was definitely searching out for that approval through males uh, because yeah. I didn't want to be a, a, a mama's boy or things of that nature so um, I adapted quickly to those guys and I think in doing so I really alienated myself from my mother because my mother uh, has more than once commented that I, I, I changed pretty abruptly and so I found myself in um you know, some, some pretty weird situations real early on. Um, I, I was not um, privileged to have the extra income of a father, so I was a little bit under probably the median median income at that time. Um, my school was struggling because obviously I had already started doing other things other than school. So um, by the time that I was uh, approaching high school, I had already um, started selling 
drugs, uh, doing things to supplement any income that my mother obviously wasn't able to afford me. Um, I had gotten, gotten really, um, I had gotten really kind of the mindset of, I I didn't want to take anything from her because I felt like it was, uh, I I owed her because she was doing all this, you know, on her own. So Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to be the man of the house, even though I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was, that was kind of the mentality that went behind my, my background. And, and, and I, I can honestly say today, I know that God blessed me with that because that's one of the reasons I have such an entrepreneurial spirit today <laughs> and, and willing to work long and hard for what I want. Because even at that age, I realized that no one was going to give me anything. Yeah. Um, the negativity to that was, is I was also had no uh, real moral compass and I was willing to do anything and everything to gain um, access to what I believe to be a success. So, um, I spent quite a few years, um, in my, in my younger years doing things that were definitely, uh, not above board. Uh, as I mentioned, I was selling weed in my high school. Um, and I was doing the recreational drugs that were available at the time. And I was definitely an underachiever when it came to school, mm-hmm. um, had pretty much, um, was heading in a really bad direction. And then as luck would have it, or as God saw fit, um, he interjected in my life with a couple of stepbrothers where my mother had been dating a man, and uh, he later became my actual stepfather. And um, he was the first figure that kind of entered my life. And that was at about the age of 13, I believe. Okay. Um, he had started to kind of I- intertwine into our lives. And he had two kids. Um, one is exactly my age, and the other one is a few years younger than me. Mm. And they were definitely more affluent. They had all the things that kids from better backgrounds had. And mm-hmm. so I, I got to see that firsthand. And then I also got to relate that it wasn't that much different. They still had their issues as well as I had mine. Mm-hmm. So that started a, a pretty good journey for me to be able to have some people in my life. And at that point, my my youngest stepbrother and I clicked really good. Um, we, we just became really thick as thieves. And unfortunately, I, I probably... Uh, turned him into a thief. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he has definitely uh, suffered the negative end of that relationship because he took on a lot of the bad things that I had to offer. Um, although he is doing very well today, um, I must say. But so w- with all of those things going on, I had gotten, um, I had gotten myself in a situation where me and another friend of mine had done some things that were probably Definitely not what we should have done. We took advantage of one of his family members, and his family member happened to be someone that was, uh, at the time, a pretty big dealer of various kinds of of drugs. And um, we got in some trouble with him because we had taken some stuff from him. And and, and in return, we were asked to do some favors for him, and it was basically delivering packages Mm. around Nashville. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, not Amazon. No, not Amazon Prime <laughs> for sure. Uh, it, it, this was pre-Amazon. <laughs> this was the beginnings of it. Wow. So, um, that, with that said, we we ended up doing some things, and it, it involved um, cocaine. That that was mm-hmm. a drug that became readily available to me as a result of doing this. And so, at 13 or 14 years old, I had gotten exposed or been exposed or had access to a lot of different narcotics, mm-hmm. um, was already into promiscuous uh, stuff with females, had no real regard to any kind of authority because my mother, I didn't view that as an authority. I viewed it as a problem. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was already well on my way to becoming a uh, hardened criminal, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, Mm -hmm. um, no doubt. Uh, Failing out at school, um, really had no ambition in in life. And um, so when all that came about, uh, I I, luckily, I'm sure it was the grace of God now looking back, there's no doubt in my mind, but uh, I had an incident happen where I had been up for several days and um, as a result of, of using cocaine through my nose, I was no longer able to do that. And, um, I had asked my friend at the time, who was a couple years older than I was, but he was the one that had um, we had gotten into trouble together, so we were working off this trouble, and um, I asked for a needle mm-hmm. because I couldn't do the uh, the cocaine in my nose anymore. And, and he looked at me, and, and and I'm sure today it was just definitely the grace of God. He said, 
man, you're crazy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and it really hit me because I mean he he was mm. someone I valued, someone I looked up to, and probably at that point in time was probably the first real um, s- soundness that I had heard, like that entered my mm-hmm. brain. I'm sure yeah. there were other people that were trying to yeah. help me, but for whatever reason that clicked. And, and I really said, you know, I think you're right. And uh, mentally I said that. I didn't necessarily say it out loud, but I said it to myself. And and so I recall I had already been having lots of trouble with my stepfather. Um, at He wasn't my stepfather, but he was in my mother's life quite a bit. And I was already having mm-hmm. problems. They wanted to keep me separated from my little brother mm-hmm. because of my behavior. Mm-hmm. And so I was already kind of suffering some consequences that were really uncomfortable because I finally had, I guess, the situation to be uncomfortable. Yeah. So long and the short of that is I went and I asked for help. Mm. I went to my mother and I confessed. And, of course, she knew because she had found stuff on me for years. Um, But I I, I actually asked for help. And and so I um, was able through some some circumstances to to get the help needed by going to Cumberland Heights. I was mm-hmm. the second youth group to go through Cumberland Heights. Oh wow. Um and I was actually I, I was 15 when I went into treatment there and um I completed their program and again by the grace of God my mother who had married at this time to my stepfather um, we moved from South Nashville to West Nashville while I was in treatment because they had mm. gone through the family program and recommended that mm. change of, of place was mm-hmm. a good thing. Um, and I, when I got out of treatment, I didn't even go back to my old neighborhood. I went to West End, and I had changed schools from uh, Glencliff High School to Hillsboro High School mm-hmm. right in the middle of Green Hills. Wow. And at that time, I graduated in 87, so I guess it was about 85 that I, when I had shifted schools to that point. Um, and at that time, uh, I guess they had made that a school of excellence because of some, it was an international school. Mm-hmm. It had, a lot, had gained a lot of recognition. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and of course, they also have a lot of affluent people that live around yeah. that area. So there was a different class of people. Mm-hmm. way different than I was accustomed to. And um, they had also embarked on Tikipah, which was the Tennessee Conference of Young People, was going on. Mm. We had a counselor in our school, uh, a lady by the name of Shirley Marks was my counselor. So I went from Cumberland Heights, where I had been given all these new tools on how to deal with a lot of the dysfunction that I had lived with all these years and mm-hmm. was finally starting to piece it together, ended up going into the school and again, I think with my willingness to do anything to get where I could go, I've always had a drive to, to, to be successful. Um, mm-hmm. Alcohol and drugs always stole my success, <laughs> I, I would say. But yeah. um, Shirley Marks took me under her wing, and, uh, and she started allowing me to go and, and peer counsel other kids. Um, and I started becoming really involved with the Tiki Pa. I was involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was doing meetings every day. Uh, we had a really good support group there in school, and and literally, I was being taken out of class and and taken to her office to to peer counsel with other people, and I found that to be really you know something really enjoyable mm-hmm. because it gave me a meaning and it gave me like a, a feeling that I was actually doing something in life rather than what I had been accustomed to. Mm. So fast forward, I ended up graduating. Uh, one of the guys that I was in recovery with, he by fluke. Uh, mentioned something to me about going to MTSU on a Pell Grant. It was a, f- a way to go to school for free. And um, because I had transferred to Hillsborough High School, I went from failing out of school to actually having almost a B average. Wow. Because, again, yeah. when I applied myself, I, I was able mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. something relatively well. So I stayed sober for that entire time, finished high school, got into MTSU, had the Pell Grant, had everything set up, ended up becoming a college student. So I went from this 15-year-old kid that had no direction to somebody that had actually found a little bit of uh, some some good direction and and, and had, a, a, had a relationship with God, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, I really mm-hmm. know God was in there the whole way. And um, once I started at MTSU, I did really good for about a year, and then I joined a fraternity, and then it started the whole 
yeah. process mm. over because yeah. then I was no longer an alcoholic. I had just made some, I had made a knee jerk decision that drinking was really not a problem. I was just young and, 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 and then the evolution of alcoholism really kicked in and it's just from there, it went for the next, um, I went for, um, well, from like probably twenty to thirty-five, in mm. and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, nine months, six months, mm-hmm. yeah. one year, two yeah. years, yeah. Uh, ever trying to uh, prove that I could drink like normal people, like right. it says. You know, yeah. I, I was the classic alcoholic, um, and I got in a lot of trouble. I got in a lot of uh, different trouble with the police. I was in a career track where I was going to be a um, I was going to work in um, the parks and recreation, and mm-hmm. I got a felony. So mm-hmm. as a f- result of having a felony, that ruined that but an end to career that. path. Yeah. And then, so, you know, it just, all these things crescendoed to the point that um, I ended up not finishing college. I only have, like, I think two semesters left to, to be a graduate from mm-hmm. MTSU, but I didn't finish it. Um, because I had gotten in a lot of legal trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got arrested in Murfreesboro for a lot of um, stuff that I was doing to make a living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I had an alibi at that point because I, I had actually been doing pretty well and I, I fell off a roof and I hurt my ankle really bad. At, at 29 years old, um, the doctor told me I'd never walk again and mm. that I was going to be forever unable to work unable to to produce mm-hmm. and as a result of that um i was on narcotics for two years unlimited and then i fell victim to oh you know i'm i i i got really depressed it was really bad it was really a dark time in my life but i also held on to the fact that i wasn't going to not not walk i was going to figure out a way to go back to doing what i was doing and i was roofing at the time that i had fallen um, and so I was really wanting to go back into that field. And um, I think uh, last week I was on a roof for a couple of three or four hours doing some stuff. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I was never one to just let people tell me that it was going to be a certain way. I've, right. I've always believed um, in the power of if you if you can believe it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. The only problem was is I always believed in me rather than believing in God mm-hmm. and having that mm-hmm. catalyst. So, um once I had gotten in trouble with the police, I was in a whole lot of trouble. It was really bad. And um, uh, I surrendered one night, and it was a night I'll never forget. I, I had been uh, 30 or 40 days sober, and I had decided I was going to go see a, a, a band that I had really enjoyed. I was a widespread panic follower for mm-hmm. some time, and they had come to Nashville, and I was going to go with my brother and a couple of other people, and I was going to stay sober. Mm-hmm. 32, 35 days sober. I'm going to stay sober at a concert where <laughs> you don't stay sober. Uh-huh. And, um, and, I, I, and I didn't stay sober. And uh, that night, uh, it was definitely one of the best things that ever happened to me because at 4 or 5 in the morning when I finally made it back to a house that I didn't own, mm. that I couldn't afford to keep the lights on or that I wasn't responsible enough to really be doing well in, um, I was in a fetal position and... I was crying and there was all those memories of everything flooded me at one time and it was just as clear as watching my life unfurl on a video of um, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Uh, I was never going to get any better. I was always going to be in this spot. I was 35 years old and I was, you know, pretty much uh, incapable of doing really anything for for myself. Yeah. And, um, I was also highly intoxicated. I was coming off of lots of different chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so I know that there was that going on in my body and, and I hadn't, I didn't have any more money for alcohol to numb the pain. And while I was there crying, I was just really, really surrendered to that gut level surrender of <clears throat> I need help. And if I don't, get help I'm it's done I'm over yeah. it's not you know I really felt that impen- as it says in the as it says in the book I was at the jumping off point yeah I, I yeah. was there so did you land back in treatment at that point or did you <clears throat> I wish okay um I actually that was a Saturday night 
Mm -hmm. And I had been uh, frequenting the Last Stop Club, which is where I still am a member. I'm on their board now today. Mm. Um, But I was there um, going to meetings because they facilitate meetings at that place. Mm -hmm. And I was there um, and had been there for the previous 30-some-odd days trying. Mm -hmm. I had an ankle bracelet on. I mean, I was doing all the stuff that you have to do for sobriety. But that morning, that Saturday morning, uh, when... I woke up, it was Sunday, and I went into the meeting, and um, <clears throat> by the grace of God, again, God's so wonderful when the, when the student's ready, the teacher seems to always appear. Mm. And there was a guy there that I had been looking and noticing, and he had been around. He was from New York. He was completely out of our realm of area. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, quite a few years sober. I asked him if he would sponsor me, and... Um, Again, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He gave me a sponsor that was the shut up, you don't know anything, close your mouth, do what I tell you mm. kind of sponsor. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And um, held me to the highest accountability. Um, he taught me the ABCs of Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. ashtrays, brooms, and chairs. <laughs> which right? even to this day is my greatest asset is you know service work service work commitment yeah he taught me those things and I was so ready I was so willing um my insides were shaking Mm. I was I was there and um and I just let it go and it was it was insanely scary but it was also uh eerily comfortable because I finally did let go and I finally experienced what it was like to let go. And, um, my last 16 years, I've, I very rarely have had a moment where I don't know and appreciate that this is the best life that there ever has been, that there ever will be. Mm -hmm. And that the whole thing that for me had always been the fact that I was, holding on to one day that I could drink like another. And Mm -hmm. when I finally quit riding that fence and I finally did just say, I don't care if I never have another drink in my entire life, it's Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. As long as I don't have to go back to what I had. Um, it's, it's just been one, you know, one revelation after another now. Um, I was extremely, uh, broke. I didn't have a license. I had a felon, uh, I was in a, the worst shape possible. I was on eight years of probation from the stuff that had happened uh, to me in Rutherford County. So I was, I mean, I was in the worst shape you could possibly be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had every reason to believe that I could have used those excuses to have never gotten anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I just said, you know what? If God is everything, then He's everything, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything I can. I'm gonna do my part, and I'm gonna leave the results up to Him. And uh, I just put my head down. I went to work. I did the next right thing. Mm-hmm. I stayed sober no matter what. My sponsor used to tell me, you know, don't drink, don't use, no matter what, mm-hmm. no matter how bad it gets. And mm-hmm. I I'm sure I've been a dry drunk. I'm sure people around me or like that guy's horrible to be around <laughs> at times yeah. because I mean, I have literally, you know, just held on to the, I've just held on to the chair sometimes sure. just to get through it. But, um, I've also experienced the amazing things of, uh, being able to see my dreams come true, see mm-hmm. a lot of the things happen around me that were not of my own making, but mm-hmm. were of a, a, a providence, a, a power greater than myself. Mm-hmm. And today I'm living proof of that. Today I'm living that life. Um, yeah. And so it's just been a crazy, insane journey. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also, um, at this point, I, I'm 50. I'll be 51 in a few days. Um, so I went from essentially 10 to 35 in a yeah. in a haze of Anesthesia. Yes, yeah. yes, sir. Absolutely. And, that, um, and now... From 35 to 50, uh, I've got. I'm starting to almost get to the point to where I've mm. maybe balanced that out. To yeah. Where, well, so where did the idea for second chance sober living 
come to you, or how did that how did that happen? Because um, did you spend time in sober living communities and part of your recovery uh, story, or um, the, where did you see the need for something like Second Chance? So yeah, I did both. A lot of mm-hmm. the stuff that you've mentioned uh, there. When when I had first gotten in trouble, like every alcoholic and drug addict that I've ever met, mm-hmm. I used treatment and halfway houses as a way to avoid consequences with the police, with sure. the court. So yeah. I had been familiar with using those places as a means to circumvent consequences. Yeah, yeah. avoid penalties. Yeah. yeah. Try to, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I was familiar with them. I had been aware of them. Um and I had even lived in a couple of them, and in living in them, um, I had lived in a few of them that were definitely not places of recovery. They were more like a a place that you could stay and and you could still get things there. There was a lot of things that were going on that you you know wouldn't have been conducive to good recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really want good recovery during those times. So it was convenient for me. It was like, Hey, yeah, I live in a halfway house. Tell the judge, look at my paper. Here's my receipt. Um, so I wasn't looking for that. Mm -hmm. Um, when I did get sober in, uh, October 25th of 2003, um, Again, the grace of God stepped in and some things happened. Where I had been living was actually a property that belonged to my mother. And um, FEMA came in and bought the property Hmm. because we lived in a flood zone. And as a result of that, me being an only child, the house was basically going to be my only um, inheritance. Mm -hmm. So as a result of it, the, uh, the inheritance got basically expedited in terms of it was there was a need because the house was being sold mm-hmm. my stepfather and my mother definitely didn't want me coming to live with them <laughs> so they obviously wanted me to find a place uh-huh. so um my mother so graciously and to this day you know i could cry because she really um that was just such a miracle for mm. everyone that that happened because once that happened um we, my stepfather and my mother and I, we, we kind of started looking around for a place mm-hmm. and, uh, we landed in the place that, um, I, ha- I had, re- have resided in for the last, uh, 13 years of mm-hmm. my sobriety. Um, I've, I've subsequently moved since then, but, um, we picked this house and, and I, I wasn't really sure about it, but my stepfather thought it would be a good place. And, um, you know, obviously w- the way that it worked out was just, Everything worked relatively well there. Um, we got this house while they were in the process of selling the, the home that was FEMA was buying. Um, and my mother was able to put down enough of a deposit on the house for me to be able to live there at a, a, enough of a, a, a cost that I could, should be able to afford mm-hmm. at the level of uh, income that I was making at the time. And at that time, I had actually been working uh, a couple of years with a company where I was doing some home remodeling. So I had been blessed with a job where I had a guy that was in recovery that was also part of this backstory that really brought me along. Even though I wasn't sober, he kept me in a job and he was there as my mentor, even though he knew I was not 100 percent. He was there the day when it was 100 percent. And I think all of that tied together. But. So I had a job where I was making relatively decent money at the time. You know, I think it was a fifteen hour, mm-hmm. fifteen dollar an hour job. So I, I was doing okay, and um, was able to figure out where I would need to be at a price point to be able to afford it. And so we found this place. We were able to have enough of a deposit from selling the place. Um, my mom agreed that if, as long as I was willing to pay her back mm-hmm. down the road, it was inherent. She, she didn't put it in my name. So that way there was yeah. no way I could go do anything crooked with it. So, um, but I, I was just so ecstatic to be sober that mm-hmm. I really didn't even, that was never really part of it at the time. I wasn't thinking houses or anything like that, but I do recall. And I think that this was significant Um, because I was working on houses and because it had become what I was doing for an occupation, I worked on that house for like three months. I wouldn't move in it. Mm -hmm. 
and they even were like, are you going to move into the house that you're supposed to live in? And mm-hmm. like, I know now I was afraid. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of failure. Mm-hmm. I was afraid that I was going to do what I'd always done. Mm-hmm. That I was going to get in there and I was going to mess it up. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I would go over there, I'd spend hours painting it, doing the hardwood floors, doing all the, everything. I mean, there was nothing left to do because I I would just keep working on it. And my sponsor and a few other people finally were like, you you need to go live there. Yeah. So, when I moved in, I was doing really well, but I was also living in a house where I was by myself Mm -hmm. and I was familiar with the halfway houses. I was familiar with the group that I was involved in. And so as I had kind of put things together, I was like, you know, it would probably be a lot better for me to have somebody here with me just as a, a moral support and someone that would be able to, we can share and we can do what uh, I think a halfway house was created for Mm -hmm. or a recovery house is created for for the bonding. It's not about the housing so much. It's about having access yeah. to friends or, or uh, people that you can share those Connection. days with sure. or those moments with or those those struggles with. Yeah. And so um, I had um, gotten a young man that I was sponsoring, and I, I had asked him. This was probably another three months into me being at the place, so I was maybe there six months. I had asked him if he... Uh, wanted to come from a p- place that he was living in, and he could stay there with me. And um, so that kind of started it organically where, I mean, I wasn't really setting out to be in a recovery house, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I had somebody living there and I saw the value in it and I saw the value for me, yeah. but then I also saw the value in there. It, it helped me to be able to offset some of the cost. Mm-hmm. So I was like, Hey, this is a win-win. This is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, on the polar opposite side, there was another place that I had been familiar with where um, guys were living and um, the owner was taking advantage of the people that were living there. They mm-hmm. were really being kind of mistreated. They were right. doing things and that were not really, uh, I mean, they would take their money and then mm-hmm. throw them out. They mm-hmm. would kick them out when it was raining, when it was snowing, make mm-hmm. them walk down the street with mm-hmm. no money, mm-hmm. you know, just things that I didn't really think even if you're not doing what you should be doing, you should be given the decency to right. leave in a vehicle the next day. I mean, yeah. you know, there, there's yeah. ways you can do things. And so I, I, I kind of had gotten a little bit sideways on the way that I saw a lot of these guys were being treated. I mean, mm-hmm. they were they were being expected to – it was more like a um, indentured servant. You know, they mm-hmm. were holding their paychecks. They were only giving them a very small amount of money. They were also uh, making them live a lot of people in – Mm-hmm. in small, small, small spaces, spaces you right. know, and, and it was really, it was really in my mind, it was, uh, taking it, you know, kicking somebody when they're down. Right. Because they really didn't have the resources to fight back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had that in my mind, but also realized that, you know, in order for me to get there, I was going to have to do a lot of things. I had no credit. I had, uh, defaulted on the student loans that I had taken out. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of wreckage of my own past that I needed to square away to be able to get started. So about maybe a year of me living in this house, I had probably two or three roommates at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to see where I could start um, putting the money back. I was actually, every bit of the money that I made during those first, um, well, during the first 10 years went right back into Mortgage. The program, mm-hmm. the, or, the houses, yeah, yeah, I, every bit of it, every penny I spent on trying to regenerate, mm-hmm. um, you know, paying off the mortgage, uh, every, yeah, just whatever I could do. I, I wasn't buying cars or trying to buy things yeah. for myself yeah. because I'd done that and it never was very self fulfilling. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but I had a banker that helped me out. I went and got one of those one hundred dollar cards that you have to give them a hundred dollars for them to let you spend 50 on mm. mm-hmm. so it was like a prepaid credit card i yeah. guess is mm-hmm. what so i had to do that and then i had no bank account that i had had established and you know i'm 35 years old i didn't even have a bank account anymore yeah. so i was starting off from the ground level 
And in doing that, I had really set my sights towards two things. One, I really did want to be somebody that could do home remodeling. Mm -hmm. And two, I wanted to ultimately give a place to guys that would be a good place. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a recovery or halfway house, but a good place. A home where Mm -hmm. they could feel comfortable. Mm Mm-hmm their own space, Mm -hmm. their own area at a price that would enable them to save money, that would enable them to get ahead if they made those choices. So that was the premise. That was the idea. And um, from there, I think it was just just the magical thing that God has where he opens those doors because within uh, a short amount of time, I had – also started my own business. I started a home remodeling business. So mm-hmm. I went out on my own at six years sober. I went out on my own with a home remodeling business. I was doing the recovery houses at that time. Mm-hmm. My recovery house. Mm-hmm. It was just my house at yeah. that time. Um, but I had people living with me and I was uh, moving forward a little bit. I had made some some headway with the banks. I was starting to get a little bit of the uh, some capital built up with the banking and had a relationship with them. And, um, I, I was cutting grass as a side job to compensate for the time off and the time to make more money. So I was cutting grass in the neighborhood. And as a result of it, um, I started cutting some grass for several people and they were elderly and I was able to buy my first house from someone that was an elderly person that had to be moved out and their family Mm -hmm. didn't want the house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the first house I bought was for $60,000. Wow. And it it was great because it needed a lot of work, but I also do home remodeling. So it gave me Mm -hmm. some work to do. It generated Mm -hmm. its own, uh, steam by giving me more work for the guys that I had working with me. And so my home remodeling kind of fell into, fixing this house well then within a short amount of time we had that one up and going and so I put some guys in that house and then I think maybe six months later my neighbor passed away and their family their son had been with me and lived in my house and they said came to me and said we would like for you to have buy this house because we know what you're doing Mm -hmm. so I actually had one of my first guys that lived with me I bought that house, which was his grandmother's, and ended up housing him and his sons. Wow. So their grandsons got to live in their grandmother's house. Their, you know, like her grandson and great-grandchildren got to live there. And then my neighbor in front of me passed away, Mm -hmm. and we were able to buy that one. And so it just... It, it continued, and, and it's like know, God had a little monopoly board up for you. And, <laughs> and all of the yeah. all of the houses that I own, with the exception of one, are within walking distance. Wow. Yeah. Well, so um, I don't want to miss a lot of details, but I want to I want to move to sure. uh, hearing about the program yes, uh, of Second Chance and um, how you all kind of manage that, and 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 what the program, what what somebody might experience when they come into your your um absolutely your your program yes so we have i have an amazing person working for me as a coordinator right now her name is misty she's really come in and done just a fabulous job she 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 helped me to get to where we're at today i i named second chance about two years ago Mm -hmm. up until then it was just Brian's houses, that, that guy over there. You uh-huh. know? So yeah. it didn't have a name. It didn't have anything. Um, <clears throat> but now we've been able, with the help of her and with the help of us trying to be more focused, because um, up until the past couple of years, I literally was not focused in being this second chance. It was mm-hmm. more like these were just houses. They were just guys living in Places them. Places and, yeah. yeah. And so it wasn't it's only been in the last couple of years that we've really shifted towards being more centered towards this thing. So to answer your question now, when someone comes in the program, we are a lot like any other programs would be, although I like to feel like we still have the, the feeling of it is your home. This is not a, this is not a temporary place. This is a place where you come in 
you you got people around you to help you get better uh, mentally, physically, financially. We have all the resources there in terms of trying to work with anyone at any level. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons two years ago that we um, were where we were was, was that I was only accepting people that were six months, nine months, one year. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going with the guys that were zero days. Or right out of treatment. Right out of treatment. No, sir. I, right. I didn't do that for right. a long time. Mm-hmm. I did not deal in that element because I was actually trying to cater to the guys that were more further along because there's a need too for when you're uh let's say you're six months to a year sober but you have no way to get a a, a, your credit is so bad you can't rent an apartment right that was who i had catered to okay yeah but a couple of years ago with the help of my administrator she and i were able to re-gear retool Mm -hmm. and we started allowing people to come in and we shifted from being the kind of uh more of a quote-unquote recovery house to open in our arms to people that were more in need Mm -hmm. but more in need means more uh work more supervision more supervision more so we had to really retool and that's where we are now today so you know what we have come to now is i have a couple of guys that work in the houses i have one guy that works a almost a 45 hour week every week and that's all he does wow works with the guys Mm -hmm. their needs Uh, misty is the administrator she orchestrates everything that goes on with the females Mm -hmm. we have 30 females so you do have houses uh separate houses for women in the program as well we acquired um uh we acquired uh what used to be a place called phases uh, a little over a year ago um during their they had transitioned to where they were going to sell off and they were going to um, shut right, the doors. Right, yeah. By the grace of God, we were able to come in and just at the right time, we were able to purchase their facilities, mm-hmm. their their three houses. Wow. And um, we were able to purchase that. We were able to retain some of the girls that were there. Mm-hmm. And we were able to implement our program to that facility, that uh, yeah that location and mm-hmm. now we have a very healthy you know 30 person uh place that's for females all, only females wow is there a waiting list a lot of times mm-hmm. um uh, but uh we have tried our best to you know accommodate everyone so with this business it's very uh high turnover i mean right. it's, mm-hmm. so we do our best to try to navigate through that. Um, mm-hmm. we, we do have a waiting list at times, but, um, you know, it, it's such one of those things, like if you really have a waiting list, if they really need help, either they're going to find help or they're not going to make it. So mm-hmm. a lot of times it's more like we just try to get them in. We have um, been trying our best to even put them in a, a, a like a temporary environment. We've let them stay on a couch here or there just to mm-hmm. give it a day because a lot of times – I think today alone we had like four people that left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that opens up doors yeah. that we don't always know when that's going to happen. So time. sometimes we try to just, you know, do what we can. So it's it's really a balance there. Mm-hmm. Um, we we don't I mean we're willing to help anyone. I mean, we have a guy right now that um, I'm sure that he's an alcoholic and a drug addict, but he's also uh, very dual diagnosed and right. he has some severe mental problems. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we try our best to help whoever we can because, you know, we we know we can't help everyone, but we want to do what we can to just be the best help possible. Um, mm-hmm. We only concentrate on alcohol and drugs, um, but a lot of times, as I think we had, uh, somebody had mentioned when I got here earlier, how that really the delineation of that is so hard because the the bipolar and the different things that play into this disease. Right. Um, So a lot of times, you know, we're dealing with just so many different things, but uh, back to your question, when they come in, we try our best to encourage them. We try our best to um, give them the resources needed. We have another person, we have two other people working with the female houses. So when they come in, we try to get them as many resources as we can, whether it be um, orchestrating food banks, orchestrating any of the stuff that they need to do as far as their paperwork, getting their um, IDs, 
uh, whatever's going to enable yeah. them to get work. We have several different businesses that we work with that we can recommend or that we can try to uh, guide them to. Mm-hmm. We also have a food or we have our own like little food bank we created. We, we started the clothes closet. Yeah. So we're able to provide these people when they come out of jails or off the streets with clothes so they can have a better attire when they go to work. Um, so you're helping people get on their feet more than just giving them places to stay and hoping they go to work and can pay the fees and do this there there's assistance at many many levels for people that are coming in um so that they have a the best possible chance of of succeeding um it sounds like that is our hope that is our prayer that is our you know we've probably failed so miserably at it that it's unbelievable but we try we try really hard we want to give them everything we can to be successful and and we know that that's not You know, from my experience, I quit drinking and stopped doing drugs many, many, many times. Mm -hmm. But I never got sober and I never changed my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is more typical than not. I mean. I believe so. Yeah. Well, so what's the best first step for somebody that wants to get in touch with Second Chance? Well, um, as of right now, we have created a lot of ways. We are... um, We're accessible through the internet now. We have a web page. We have... um, they can call us directly. They can call um, my administrator directly. They can call me directly. Um, we do have a we have a, a, a website that um, one of our good friends has created for us, and it's fully encompassing with a lot of information. There's uh, an application there, um, mm-hmm. so there, there's a lot of ways that people can get to us. Uh, probably calling is one of the best things, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of just calling us direct. We What's really, the best number? Um, <clears throat> so the best number to reach <clears throat> me would be at 615-474-9924. And then <clears throat> my administrator, her name is Misty Breest. And Misty um, usually has her phone with her during the day um, for business hours. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is something that she would usually um do during business hours but our business hours are pretty wide and broad so that that goes without saying but her number is um let's see i've got it right here at 615-926-2878 okay fantastic i i do have to ask you this um do you find now as you get this added responsibility brian for these people that you're caring for Are there times, I guess maybe I'm projecting my own personal experience, where I have started to imagine that these people are really my responsibility. I start to carry more than than is my share to carry, and I start then to get stressed, and then i got to remember that this is a God thing, and I'm not God, and I've got to give it back. But have you ever ridden that kind of roller coaster, the stress roller coaster? No. Every day. Oh, every day. Okay. <laughs> I'm shaking my head no, but only because yes. Yeah. Like, no, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. I, I'm, sure if, I'm sure if you ask some of my clients or the people that residents, they would probably say all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, I probably go way out of my bounds because you, you can't help but love people. You can't help but want to help them. And sometimes mm-hmm. we want to help them more than they want to help themselves. Yeah. yeah. And that's a real fine line because I don't know when to give up. I don't know when to quit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, uh, but after having done this for the last 16 years, because I've essentially been, I still to this day have people that live with me in my own personal space. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I still have, I still live with the, yeah. the yeah. residents. Yeah. Um, for many reasons. One, it keeps me connected. And also, it also enables me to do exactly what you're saying, where, I'm involved, and I try my best to stay connected with with their needs, but then I also try my best to let go when I need to. Yeah, and that's tough. I mean, I, I just think that's that's probably the the hardest thing for any of us that are in any kind of recovery is you know you always want to be of service, but I have to remember that I'm only I'm only here so that I can hold someone's hand long enough for God to show up in their life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the way you put that. That's mm-hmm. my job. 
Yeah. Now, sometimes I want to be God and I want to say, do it this way, or God wants you to do it this way. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be human otherwise, but I realize how insignificant my part is when I see someone be a, be eliminated with the, mm. the spirit of God. It makes me small and, and, and it makes, it doesn't take away from my effort, but it really reiterates to me just how we're only here as agents to just i've heard it said before and i do believe it in my own heart it's just i'm just here just so i can be their friend until they can find god mm -hmm. and, and that's it's just you know it's what was done for me i mean people love me long mm -hmm. enough for me to be able to have my own experience because your experience isn't going to be mine, and your yeah. version of the way you think you're going to get there isn't going to be mine, although it might have a lot of similarities. Um, and, and I do think that that's where um, anyone in recovery gets in trouble is that, you know, we've – I was probably five or six or maybe even seven or eight years sober when I realized – not everybody thinks like me mm -hmm. <laughs> for a long time. I thought that yeah, I was yeah. like, why don't you see this? What yeah, is wrong yeah. with you? Yeah. So it's just so challenging, you know, but uh, I do think that that's one of the reasons that um, I feel blessed to be an alcoholic today. I feel blessed to be in recovery today because I feel like of all the, of all the um, illnesses that are, here in the world this is one of the illnesses even though it's deadly it's also so amazingly godly too mm. it just depends on which side of the coin you're on mm. yeah well i can't think of a better way to end this conversation than with that thought thank, thank you so much brian for joining us absolutely uh, brian thank yeah. you so much and all the best to second chance and uh, all your work and efforts and i know you've got some exciting things to uh, that are coming up, and uh, when we can talk about them, I want to have you back, and we'll talk about those. Uh, I know that some things are in the hopper, but uh, we'll look forward to that. All right, so with that cliffhanger, we'll <laughs> wrap this part of the show. <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast, and I, Nate, I feel convicted. I, um, I listened to Brian, and you know, this guy has uh, made a um, a life out of service, mm -hmm. serving others. Yeah, yeah, uh, just really amazes amazes me. And and what great opportunities uh, that these homes have opened up that became something that he didn't actually necessarily go out with a big blazing vision. Uh, to have you no, just no, they happened no. it yeah. almost happened to him it sounds yeah, like yeah but yeah with a lot of work <laughs> yeah yeah and and it's inspiring to hear really how miraculous it is from a guy who i mean didn't have a could didn't have a bank account and you know right. had all those felonies and warrants and no credit and all that kind of stuff yeah. and just gave himself to service yeah and uh, yeah applied himself to the opportunities that were in front of him mm -hmm. did the next right thing yeah you know yeah. and 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 it unfolded and and i i work with a lot of people that um find themselves in situations from time to time where uh their post-treatment post-rehab mm -hmm. uh can't quite go home yet yeah. or family's not ready yet to, uh, to to completely buy in and trust right, right. and there's this three month six month mm -hmm. lag yeah. you know that uh we don't know maybe where would be a great place yeah. to end up and it's great to know that guys like brian are out there um offering what they are in emotional support as well and Brian is no idealist either. He's well aware that a lot of the guys who come through are not yet at a point where they're ready to surrender. Mm -hmm. They're trying to escape consequences. He mm -hmm. says he yeah. did the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's leaving that to God. Mm -hmm. And I love the way he said it, to hold a person's hand long enough till they can have their own encounter with God. Yeah. Yeah. That's And boy, it, that's an exercise in trust. It is, it is. Yeah. 
Well, uh, thanks again. You brought us another great guest, David, and there are more on tap. We've got more coming up in the weeks ahead. We do. We've got some great folks coming in, uh-huh. and uh, I'm excited to get to sit down and, and just hear some some more really incredible stories and uh, things that people are doing, really creative things people are doing. So it's, it's going to be fun. Well, until next week then, I'm Nate. I'm David. We're your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 